Thank you. I wanted to apologize to all three of our, of our guests, by the way, all three of our witnesses for the abbreviated amount of time. But let the record show that when Atlantic Canada and Newfoundland and Labrador had its moment here before this committee, others decided to hijack it for other reasons. We're used to that. We're used to that. Note the date, note the time, take down the names. Thank you all very much. Hello, this is episode 22 of the Boys in Short Pants, 23rd episode. God, that was a good opening, wasn't that it? That was a great opening. We could uh, adapt that into a movie trailer, I, I think, very easily. I wish we always had Atlantic Canadian MPs berating people to, uh, to open our podcast. Yeah, that was... Uh, well, I mean, we always do, actually. <laughs> actually that, that's actually... Because yeah. uh, usually it's our, our good friend uh, Wayne Easter. Mr. Easter Mr. does Mr. does enjoy his rants at times, but yeah, now Mr. we have Seamus O'Regan ranting. Yeah, so, so uh, the story behind that is uh, actually the... An interesting one. Uh, we last actually heard from Mr. O'Regan in uh, the month of January in our first episode. I our very first episode. Well, our episode one, Two. second episode. God damn it. But, uh, <laughs> but he was actually one of uh, Justin Trudeau's guests on Billionaire Island. He was. Yeah. The man loves his islands, he loves his fish, and he loves uh, Atlantic Canada. Yeah, actually, and this is a bit of an aside, but uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I was, uh, was watching uh, Ronna Ambrose in the house a couple weeks ago, and she actually said Billionaire Island to refer to this thing and uh, I, just, I was very tickled by that I really I, enjoyed it you're, you're a big fan yeah, you, you, believe, you believe Rona actually uh, we started this or Rona rather yeah. is uh, a well known listener of the show oh yeah, she listens that's, that's not true at all no she does um, back to Seamus yeah though. Seamus O'Regan so um, a bunch of the Atlantic Canadian caucus right now are really mad and of course the Atlantic Canadian caucus is 100% liberal because they want every seat in Atlantic Canada good on them many of you remember if any of you are working on New Democrat campaigns, uh, I bet you watch those returns coming in with a very sinking feeling in your gut. I, not, uh, I think everyone in Canada, well, well every non-liberal in Canada, well. just yeah. watching the returns come in because they come in first because of the time zones, and you're like, uh, Oh, that's uh, not good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not good. Anyway, uh, yeah, I was still up pulling the vote at that point, and it was like, woof, that was a bit of a punch in the gut. Anyway, yeah, sorry, we're really uh, digressing today. It's very warm in Ottawa, so we're a little, we're a little loopy from the humidity. Um... So Seamus O'Regan and the Atlantic Caucus are very angry because in the Immigration Committee, uh, there was a unanimous motion in the House, or a motion that was supported unanimously in the House a couple weeks ago, to have a study of immigration to Atlantic Canada, because as many of you I'm sure know, Atlantic Canada is a region with you know very slow-growing or declining population, very rapidly aging population, very low economic growth year over year and few dynamic industries so there's a concern that you know bringing immigrants would would be a good step to economically revitalize the region so unanimously the entire house voted for this motion to send this study to the immigration committee to you know talk to witnesses and whatnot so uh the atlantic mps are many of whom are some of whom are on the immigration committee have you know called in witnesses so that the the committee can begin its study and the Conservatives and New Democrats have um, used the time allotted to some of the um, invited witnesses who are often Atlantic Canadian uh, municipal councillors, business people, etc. Students, anyone who works in the region has yeah. something, something to add on the immigration file. Yeah, and they, they've been called in. And then uh, the Conservatives and New Democrats will use this time to filibuster. So we actually had a lot of trouble finding out what the filibuster was actually about. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to note that in this instance, there's there's previously a filibuster at this committee a couple weeks ago by uh, 
uh, conservatives in support of an immigration office in Western Canada closing in in Vagerville, yes, specifically. Um, But to the best of our ability, this this is don't mock Vagerville. (laughs) I'm not mocking Vagerville. Vagerville is uh, a very important city in Alberta and home to the. Do you know what their uh, their uh, attraction is? Uh, Is it the biggest? I don't know. Easter egg, Ukrainian Easter, Easter egg. egg. Oh, those are cool. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, they have a specific name, but like every I, every Ukrainian word is very hard to pronounce. Many so. small uh, small cities in Alberta have you know the biggest this, the largest that. Yeah. One, one of the nearby ones, Edmonton, is the largest French Canadian mural. Is their claim to fame? Interesting. Is that Saint Albert? Or? No, it's not. It's some small town. I can't remember. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, but back to immigration committee. Um, so the filibuster, we we looked. Pretty hard. Yeah, like this. This was some determined googling <laughs> and googling and like looking through some of the transcripts. We talked to people. Like yeah. we did actual journalism almost. And no one seems uh, like it's like I'm sure there is a reason, but it just hasn't been thoroughly well, enunciated. Well, what I've gleaned is that it's because the minister, the immigration minister, has not been in front of the committee in several months. Yes, I, I yeah. think that's what it is. I think, the, but no one seems to be super willing to articulate that explicitly. I think it was implicitly articulated, yeah, but, but it's, it's not—it's not making it into reporting. No one's come out and said like we are doing that. this because the minister hasn't come by. Um, so the conservatives, specifically, I think Bill C six, yeah, which okay. changed some of the rules around citizenship. I think the NDP want to see the minister to talk about you know immigration so levels especially. and refugees yeah. and success rates and like probably. Uh, Chechens, like Chechens, just this close to saying and some other hippie bullshit. That's not true at all. <laughs> I love, that's not true at all. Um, so what you have is an immigration committee where all the Atlantic Canadians are up in arms. All the Atlantic Canadian MPs um, have spoken out against it. They've yeah. written letters to all the Atlantic Canadians. Of course, being all the Liberal MPs is, yeah, is sort 30, of the subtext there. All thirty-two of them. Um, and you also have uh, news articles popping up. From Atlantic Canadian outlets, as well as more general outlets, yeah. saying like filibuster is you know destroying yeah. this study. I believe the Conservatives. I'm not sure about the NDP because I'm not as tapped into those channels. Was a part of it, but they made an offer in response to the outcry by Atlantic Canadian MP- or yeah Atlantic MPs uh, to have the committee sit over summer um, in order to make up for lost time. Okay. Um, so that's sort of their way of pushing back and saying, no, we, we do care about Atlantic Canadian, but process does matter here. We should be able to use our obstructionist tools to make a point in the House. And anytime you make a point in the House, something is going to be set on the back burner. Yeah, like, just inevitably. It, it's the nature of oppositional tools that they are fundamentally obstructionist and therefore, you know, important things don't go through according to plan. Yeah. Um, if I were to give a frank assessment of it, a committee report is perhaps not the worst thing to be obstructed uh, when opposition is making yeah. a point. I mean, like in the sense that committee reports, like, there are lots of committee reports that have come out over the years. In fact, uh, there was a great committee report on electoral reform that this government chose not to do a whole lot with, as it turned out. Um, so... In that sense, you know, it, I, I do feel a little bad for, you know, like Atlantic, like there's a Cape Britain, Cape Breton, excuse me, um, regional counselor that came and, you know, didn't get a chance to speak. And that kind of sucks. I feel, I feel bad. Like that's unfortunate. But at the same time, like there is a price. That's to, Ottawa, folks. <laughs> there is a price to be paid for democracy and yeah. efficiency is part of it. Yeah. Like efficiency doesn't come easily in a parliamentary or Westminster system. Yeah. 
And or, so there are certainly hijinks to be had. Yeah, or the efficiency is inversely correlated to controversy. Absolutely. I think it's fair to say. Because uh, there are lots of things you can do to kind of throw sand in the gears if you're the opposition. And this is one of them. Uh, and I think that's been something we've talked about a lot on the show is like, what can opposition actually do? And it turns out it's a, it's a million little things, right? And, and you know, obstructing uh, reports that a big chunk of the government caucus wants to put through by, you know, being a little petty is one of those things. And, and to, uh, to dampen this a little bit, so the conservatives also have, as, as I just stated, have offered to do the summer sittings, but these MPs, it's not like they're being, or not the MPs, the witnesses rather, it's not like they're being like censored. Yeah, right? or silenced. Yeah, they have Silence. other outlets. They are still able to submit formal uh, briefings to the committee or formal... Yeah, like um, written submissions. Written submissions. Yeah. Uh, and they're still able to talk to the MPs yeah. uh, in person. They're, they're obviously not going on record with those statements, yeah. but they can still be equally persuasive but Yeah, I mean, like, if you just go scenes. talk to Michelle Rempel after the committee or whoever, because she was on this guy. I used Michelle because she's on the committee and yeah. has been on the record Or Seamus or any, any of them. And just go tell them about your concerns... Like, they'll, they'll listen. Uh, in fact, a couple weeks ago, when a couple of these counselors were in town, the liberal MPs on this committee went to the NDP bar on the night where all the NDPers <laughs> go, and it was kind of seen as a dick move, so don't do that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's the other Actually, you know what? I do want to touch on another thing. Is the Atlantic Canadian Caucus has been something of a weird anomaly because it's very rare that an entire region of the country goes for one party entirely. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is rare. I mean, you'll have provinces that are near sweeps. And, of course, there have been a couple provincial sweeps in Canadian history. PEI and New Brunswick, I believe, oh. were the only ones. Did they no. ever sweep? Well, no. There was one. There was well, that's one not a sweep, Etienne. It's not a sweep. There was one holdout, which I'm riding during university. Edmonton Strathcona was oh, of NDP. It, of course it was. Oh, that was 82, I think. with the And that was uh, Rachel Notley's father, I think. Grant Notley. No, no, not that long not ago. Not that one? I'm talking federally. Oh, at... federally. Okay, yeah. No, that happened all the time. Yeah, yeah. No, that was like even very recently. 2011. Yeah. yeah. It was just Linda Duncan. Is Linda Duncan. Yeah, the, okay. only, the only holdout in Alberta for quite a while there. Yeah. And now there's obviously been greater gains made. Yes, yes. Okay. Put it, Shelving that aside, there is, um, yeah, having an entire region go for one party is unusual. And there was the episode with the Supreme Court um, last summer. Uh, where the government was considering appointing a Supreme Court justice not mm. from Atlantic Canada. Uh, in this, this sort of tradition, uh, it's not really written now that you have to do this anywhere, but this constitutional convention that there is regional representation on the Supreme Court. And, you know, getting rid of Atlantic Canada's representation would have been unprecedented, for one, and also, I think, quite a blow to the Atlantic Canadian MPs and to the caucus because they had basically, they sat on, I mean, from what I hear, they were very, they were effective at pushing back against this in a sort of off the record and back channel way. And they would take it up in caucus and that kind of thing and push back. But publicly, you did not hear a lot out of them, which never looks good. It created the awkward slash interesting situation of both the NDP and the Conservatives putting up speakers not representing Atlantic Canada to yeah. represent it on their behalf. Yeah. Um, so I know one of the Conservatives... Good old virtual representation, if anyone's a uh, late 18th century uh, theories of Westminster 
parliamentary systems. Yeah. One of the uh, conservative MPs who does this often is, of course, Lisa Raitt. Uh, with oh, she's her, from Cape Breton, yeah. With her links <laughs> to the region. Yeah, and it's Guy Calhoun for the NDP, who is from the closest writing the NDP has to uh, Just Canada. geographically, yeah. like, I am the closest. Well, like, it, it is pretty close, admittedly, but yeah. Fair enough. The The French-speaking makes sort of an interesting twist for a region that's hey, there primarily are lots of, Anglophone. Lots of Francophones in Atlanta, Canada. There are, but... And Guy's English is very... Barely regionally concentrated. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah so, that, that was an interesting episode, and I, I just highlight it to draw contrast between um, when the government does something that the Atlantic Canadian MPs don't like, they're very quiet. Though, from once again, to be fair, from what I heard... They were pushing fairly hard behind the scenes. And ultimately, they got the results that they and wanted. Ultimately, yes, the government um, backed down Because all signs were showing. The Magic 8-Ball was telling me well, that... Well, Jody Wilson-Raybould had gone in front of the Justice Committee and said, like, oh, you know, well, we should hi- think about other concerns for diversity, and had basically gone all out. Yeah, you were, like, as you said, like, they were sort of telegraphing that they weren't going to pick an Atlantic Canadian. Absolutely. So yeah. the pick of an Atlantic Canadian uh, was seen as a major step back from... Yeah. Their, are, their original plan. Yeah, which is good. Uh, I, I, can, I, can I nerd out for a second here, actually, on this? No. I, no. Oh, no, I'm okay. kidding. You okay. go for it. <laughs> so I found that was a really interesting episode, and we're, we're getting a little further off where, where we're going here, but I, I just think it is an interesting notion, or an interesting point to reflect on Canadian federalism in the sense that historically we've had a conception of federalism as uh, geographic. Uh, and that's opposed to a notion of consociation, which is common in a lot of European countries like Belgium or Switzerland, where not only do you have territorial federalism, you also have a sense of cultural consociation, where in Switzerland you have the French, German, Italian, and to a smaller degree, uh, Romanche communities sort of hashing it out. In, and you have institutions to support this. In Belgium especially, you have the Flemish and French populations, and not only do you have the national parliament you have the you know regional parliaments for wallonia and the flemish region i love the walloons yes the walloons are great uh and they also have uh parliaments for the french and the flemish speaking communities so you have uh legislative entities that are not territorially based they are based on you know cultural cultural. community yeah um so and you know that's that's a legit approach to how you do living together in large diverse federations like there's nothing explicitly wrong with that approach and to some degree we've accommodated a degree of consociational notions into our federalism with kind of distinct society debate around quebec and the sort of asymmetrical federalism thing where Quebec gets certain powers that others don't. It's not saying that anybody's better than anyone else, but simply a recognition of multinationalism and diversity uh, in a, you know, especially in historic nations like Quebec and that kind of thing. So it's not illegitimate to talk about uh, different degrees of diversity or different kinds of diversity that aren't just territorial in a federal system, but it's just that the liberals were doing this in such a like back, like weird way that was just like, through the back door, not really willing to make the case for itself. They were just saying like, oh, by the way, we're, we're doing this now. That I found that very odd because it really is a very different conception of how we've traditionally approached federalism, especially on the Supreme Court, that, yeah, it would be super weird for them to have done that. So that's my digression on sort of academic notions of uh, how, how, how people live together in large, diverse federations. I hope you're still with us. Yeah, sorry. Uh, this is, one, once again, <laughs> stuff that made its way into my master's thesis. Um, okay, uh, the Senate, another fun institution. The Senate! So the Senate recently has been interesting because they had the um, Senate modernization package or sort of reform, once again, a great parliamentary committee study on uh, Senate modernization. 
that proposed uh, giving the Senate the power to break up omnibus bills to sep uh, consider the separate parts individually. And they wanted to do this with the Liberals' Budget Implementation Act, which we've talked about in the past with regard to the parliamentary budget officer. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit. So uh, the quick version of the story is that the BIA, the Bubble Budget Implementation Act, uh, has gone through the House and is now sitting with the Senate. And the Senate has decided, uh, in sort of a weird confluence of events, because if you look at the text around what was said, um, when they decided to vote one MP like moved the motion then tried to vote again or not mp1 senator moved the motion um to make the vote and then tried to recall the vote at the last minute and mm. tried to cancel the vote and then they pushed ahead with the vote and he then spoke on it and said like this will probably piss everyone off but i'm gonna vote in favor of the vote after all like it, it went back and <laughs> forth so That's this, alpha. That's this one good. particular senator was very very unsettled with the direction he was going to go but suffice it to say um so the senate uh, tried to move the vote to split the infrastructure bank, uh, yeah. which is a multi-billion dollar... $35 billion. ...ish controversial project um, from the Budget Implementation Act, which yeah. is the basically the budget bill. Yeah. It has all the funding for the government for a while. Yeah. Um, and the Speaker deemed this out of order. Yeah. And because it would originate a money bill in the Senate, essentially, which is forbidden in the Constitution. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then the senators said, "The overrule. Yeah. Let's let's vote against it." So the conservatives banded together. I believe the vote was thirty-eight, thirty-two, or thirty-three, yeah. some, something, something like along that. those yeah. lines. Uh, largely led by conservatives. I think there was one or two independent votes yeah. in there, uh, which split the bill. So what does, or sorry, not to split the bill, to override the speaker, yeah. giving the Senate the ability to split the bill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so with the Senate now having the ability to split the bill, they have to then discuss and decide if they are in fact going yeah. to split the bill. So that will be a really interesting precedent if they end up doing it. Yes. It's not, uh, it's not a precedent that the senators would override the speaker. Um, this happened as recently as in the last parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Leo... Husakos. I was going to terribly mispronounce that. Husakos. Uh, not, not after earlier. I'm not letting you mispronounce another name. <laughs> Senator Husakos um, had uh, uh, overruled the Senate on what they wanted to do with a uh, labor bill once upon a time. Oh, yes. And the senators ultimately overruled him and voted uh, in the direction that they were uh, wanting in the dying days of the Harper government. Yeah. So the Senate override or the override of the chair, uh, while interesting, is not unique. No. Um, it's not. No. The, the precedent would be incredibly significant. The, the precedent, precedent would be the splitting. That yes. would be huge. Yeah. Because I mean, they've never done this before. It's something that the Senate uh, Modernization Committee recommended, and it would be big if they decided to go that way. Because as I pointed out. Uh, Originating money bills in the Senate is a bit of a no-no. Uh, so it would be interesting. Uh, we will see what happens with that. So let's say the senators vote to split the bill. Um, they split the bill. Basically, the bills then have to go back. They're, they're fundamentally altered. Yeah. They, get they get bounced back to the House. The House then has to vote whether they want to keep the changes by the Senate or reject the changes. Yeah. Um, under Bill Morneau, I believe, the House or the government has said... Don't do it. We're going to reject the, reject the changes, and we're going to send them the bills combined back to you. Yeah. And then you're going to have to go with it. Because the idea of basically how the Senate operates, even this newly independent Senate, is that it won't so far really push back on the House of Commons twice. 
the idea is that if the Senate sends it back to the House and the House says, no, we're not accepting your changes, the Senate it is the Senate's responsibility yeah. to back down at yeah. that point, being the unelected yeah. House of House of uh, Parliament. Um, so one, one of the broader um, subtext of this is the Senate in general. A lot of pundit ink and blood has been spilt. <laughs> one over... pundit in particular. <laughs> well, no, there have been heaps of pundits writing on this, um, on whether or not this is a good precedent yeah. for the Senate yes. or a bad precedent. Well, there's, there's one pundit fundamentally like tearing his hair about this. Are you talking about Andrew Coyne? I am talking about Andrew Coyne. Would you like to explain his position? Uh, he doesn't like it. He thinks that the Senate should... He, uh, he's had a very tortured relationship with the Senate over the years, I think, in the sense that he, he doesn't like when they are toadies to the government. He also doesn't like when they're independent. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of situation would leave Andrew Coyne happy, but that's Andrew Coyne's prerogative and whatever. Yeah, there are some sort of in-between positions. I, I discussed one the other day, but I can't remember the specifics of it. That sort of just more clearly outline what an yeah. independent Senate's Like sort of technical powers fixes. Are. Or like the, yeah. the Dutch Senate, for instance, basically just acts as a constitutional court before the constitutional court. How, uh, much, how much you tweak legislation. Yeah. Whether or not you keep legislation fundamentally on track, or, or whether suspensive this, versus absolute veto. Yeah, whether yeah. the Senate becomes a place for bills to die, which it has been in the past. Yeah, that is fundamentally overriding the government's will without sort of engaging the process. Yeah, things like that. So, like the the short version of this is that, particularly for this bill, um, we'll see. I, I think the other uh, the interesting element here is the time. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned in one of the last episodes that the House of Commons is set to rise this week, I believe. And the Senate will likely linger for perhaps up to another couple weeks, if not a month later. Yeah. Um, but all of this has to play out yeah. before the House can rise. Otherwise, the House cannot leave the Budget Implementation yes. Act being bounced back to the House. No. And, that, yeah, it'll be very... Yeah, well, actually, we, we should cover the Senate in more detail once the House rises because we'll have less to do and it'll be interesting. Because um, we don't, no one really does that. Uh, actually, no one really has like a Senate reporter. That'd be interesting. That might change, actually. I mean, the tricky thing with the Senate, uh, just from a procedural perspective, and this goes back to well, they sit Senate, at weird hours Senate reform and... parts. They sit at weird hours. They're, uh, the way they start consists of them reading. The entire uh, the, not uh, the order paper. Yeah, it's awkward. They might uh, change that. Yeah, there's there's yeah. a bunch of changes going through, and also that they're not um, broadcast. Yeah, it well, is they are broadcast by like audio, audio but not only. Video. Yeah, yeah, so not video, which leaves you out of a part of the puzzle. So they will they will change that though. That is in the change. So there's yeah. a bunch of Senate uh, modernization reforms, and that's something hopefully we'll talk about over the summer. Yeah, we've done a bit of Senate stuff before, but we should actually it'd be great to get a Senate staffer on or something and do do a more in depth Senate bit. Yeah, and cover yeah. the the full Senate reform report that, that came out uh, yeah. six odd months ago. Yeah, that could be fun. Okay, we'll take we'll take a look at doing that in the near future. Another actually great piece of news from the Senate this week is that C16, the uh, trans rights bill, uh, passed, and that was like great news, and I'm really happy about that. So I wanted to flag that because it's good. Uh, very good, good news stories from the government. It had been going through for almost time. 10 years, I think. A long time. Um, so there it is. Yeah. Um, there are a couple bills, um, controversial bills, that we'll, that we're sort of on watch for to see if the Senate passes before it rises. Yeah. Um, another one being the changes to Canada. Yeah, yes. Um, in, That's been like over a year now. Uh, in the Senate, yeah. The Senate yeah. has been fairly obstructionist on it because... Because uh, of course they are. Because... 
Look, the, the word Senate... The, question, the changes it, are questionable. Yeah, it, inter- anyway, interesting etymological uh, fact. Uh, Senate comes from the Latin word senex, which means old man, and senatus is the chamber of old men. Do you often do this? Do you often just... Someone's yes. talking to you, you're at Starbucks, and you're like, actually, well, coffee comes from the misspelling of cofevivi. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, yes, the answer to your question. Um... Okay, so that, that's the Senate for, for this week. Uh, the standing order changes that have been sort of like going through the, the sort of liberal Stalingrad that we've seen in the House <laughs> of Commons over the last couple, uh, couple of months. Um, so the most, the most notable part of this, uh, there's of course been all the other issues with the standing orders. Is it more of a Verdun than a Stalingrad? I don't know. Anyway, you get the idea. Carry on. <laughs> Perhaps they're Waterloo in the end. Did you know it's the 200th anniversary of Waterloo today? The standing order changes will never be a Waterloo. They'll never be remotely significant. Um, basically, what the standing order changes are, um, they're moving ahead with their parliamentary reform, and this is what caused uh, Bardish Chagger so much grief circa three, four months ago. The MP for Waterloo. The MP for Waterloo. No joke. Eh? <laughs> yeah, incredibly ironic. Um, What's interesting and the newest development this week was that the, again, Conservatives and NDP are finding uh, finding out that they have more in common than anyone would have thought and banded together to try and force yeah. uh, 250-odd votes um, on basically as a... Everything. <laughs> on ev- like everything. Well, no, it was, it was on budgetary or SUPS A or SUPS B or, or I, one of these. Yeah. Um, I'm not well-versed in the financial side of legislation Um, so the short version of this is one of the classic stalling techniques in parliament has been to introduce like 500 odd amendments reform did this back in the day to a bill and force everyone to vote on every odd amendment or at the very least have the speaker read or things along these lines Um, in the interim or post reform doing this there were changes made allowing the house leader or the speaker whoever is in charge of this to bundle amendments and have the amendments voted on as, as, yeah. a, as a bundle to make it incredibly quick. So you'd break it up into two or three votes, which isn't that hard. Yeah. Um, when it's Apparently when it's on a uh, financial bill, yeah. that power does not exist. Well, that's why if you go look in, if you're a nerd like me and you go look in the uh, like actual supplements and estimates, yeah. uh, you'll see stuff broken down by vote. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's why that is done like that. So they introduced 250-odd uh, votes, which was estimated to take about 30 hours. And the votes were supposed... Of constant to, sitting. Of, yeah. of up and down, up and down. Yeah. Like, at that point, it's better for the opposition than for the government, just in terms of, like, logistically. Because the government has to win votes. Yeah. Um, the opposition doesn't. Yeah. So the opposition can sub people out, send them back to their office to go to sleep, and only have like a skeleton crew on, whilst the government not wanting to be, you know, surprised by the number of which uh, has happened before. Surprised by the number of MPs in the chamber will keep a larger contingent of people there. Yeah. Plus, they also have like more stuff to do. Generally speaking, <laughs> this this is true. Um, so, needless to say, having you know a hundred odd MPs be in the chamber for thirty hours overnight, even yeah. Um, 
doing mundane voting, standing up and down. Yeah, I, and I, I, I don't know if you guys have ever watched not votes. Fun. If you ever watch votes on on CPAC, it, it's not exactly like riveting. It's not. You you stand up in your place when your name is called. Yeah, that, it's that's not it. super interesting. And you wait for the speaker to individually go through three hundred and thirty eight odd members, depending on how many are there. And they will stand up in their place when they are called upon. So a, a single vote is something along the lines of fifteen minutes. Um, so obviously, doing it two hundred and fifty odd times is inconvenient. Um, so the moral of this, uh, whilst we were drinking in the courtyard, um, the uh, a negotiation or a settlement of some sort was reached, and the liberals backed down on some of their changes to the standing orders yet again. Yeah, that is um, not going well for them. And so I think the most significant one coming out of this was the uh, the fact that Prime Minister's Question Time, which is Justin Trudeau taking all the, well, Justin Trudeau or any Prime Minister, taking all the questions on Wednesdays would not be codified. Yeah. And so the Liberals pushed back and said, well, we'll make a convention instead. He's been doing it for a while now and he'll continue doing it, but it won't be decreed in the standing, the standing orders. orders. Yeah, which is fine. All right, and that'll bring us to our, our next topic, uh, Norsat, uh, sale of... Yeah, so this is quite a change of pace um, pro- from what we've been talking about, but still pretty significant. Uh, it's been a sleeper issue. It's been lingering over the past week. Um, the quick version of it is that Norsat uh, is a company out of Vancouver, BC, so- somewhere along those lines, um, that sells uh, what's called dual-use technology. Um, it's used for both civilian and military purposes, and their list uh, of people they sell to includes like uh, Canadian Armed Forces, like the Pentagon, like heaps of you know. Submit- but then also just like and yeah, like just general. Whatever. They they work on sort of satellite technologies yeah. and receivers and radio and that sort of thing. So civilian and military applications. Um, about a week or two ago. Um, the Trudeau government, or, or it came out that uh, the Trudeau government wasn't going to go ahead with a full national security review. What is a national security review, Dan? So and why are they done? Under the Investment Canada Act, um, there is the ability for the government to block the sale of uh, companies or to review and then perhaps block the sale of companies if they are deemed sensitive. I, I, don't, I don't have the exact legislation or the wording in front of me, but that's roughly what it is. Um, and so the idea is that if you have a company that has military applications, uh, let's use the most obvious one. Uh, let's say like a company in Canada that builds tanks, um, or or jeeps or, or, jeeps or <laughs> light armored vehicles or something along these lines. Obviously, like LAVs generally don't have labs, don't have the uh, most high tech uh, and advanced technology. No. Um, but the idea is you're able to review the sales of these before they go to a foreign government. And so, in this instance, uh, the government has expressed that they did a preliminary review and they deemed it unnecessary that NORSAP faced a full review under, I I think it's the Investment Canada Act. Um, This is significant because basically everyone on the periphery of this deal being former directors of CSIS, former officials, um, the United States senators have come out and said, what are you doing? Yeah. Because uh, I guess the part I haven't mentioned yet is that it is being sold to the Chinese, to a Chinese company called Hytera, which has been pretty substantively linked to the Chinese government. As many companies in China are. And so the issue here, and we've seen this uh, with multiple companies in Canada as of late, uh, most significantly perhaps, and coming from my hometown, my hometown is Nexen. 
Um, uh, yes. Once upon a time, um, and this was an issue of some controversy and some of the laws changed as a result, um, was whether or not CNOC, which is the Chinese, I'm missing one of the letters, Chinese offshore oil company, uh, could purchase Nexen uh, and effectively get access to a lot of oil sands technologies for SAG-D mines and things, or SAG-D drilling and things, things along those lines. Um, and so under the conservative government, these were reviewed very carefully. There was a lot of suspicion of the Chinese, um, and they were not seen, and they generally aren't seen in the West, to be good partners to sell or to uh, to sell sensitive information to. This has been backed up um, by things like Chinese hacking, uh, corporate espionage. These are all like very significant issues. Plus, you can get bootleg DVDs. Bootleg uh, DVDs China, so have not can, have not been yeah. on the forefront of uh, the government's concerns. Um, and so the question has become: Is the what what what's the liberal government's play here? What what are they doing? Yeah. And the opinion is basically that the liberal government has been trying to work on a free trade deal with the Chinese, has been trying to work on foreign direct investment, and so they are willing to give up critical pieces of technology and defense infrastructure, not defense infrastructure, but the, the research well, actually, behind defense infrastructure. With this government, everything is infrastructure, so don't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> In order to appease the Chinese on trade things, which works perfect for the Chinese. If they can spend money, buy assets, and get technologies that they can port back home, that's great. All the better, right? And so in the House, there have been some questions whether or not um, what the liberals have stated in regards to the review has been procedurally correct. There are questions as to whether or not um, the public service would have advised for or against um, a full review of the process and whether or not they would have been overridden at the political level. Yeah. So that, that's sort of what's lingering here. There's also the element from the United States of the United States saying like, yo, we can't be partners with you and have you selling like key technological companies to the Chinese because that undermines us all. That puts into doubt the technologies that we're using, yeah. the maintenance of that technology, the patching of it. There's just so many questions that come in. Uh, and then I guess the last part of it I would mention in this rant uh, would be that an American hedge fund um, offered to buy high, offered to buy Norsat at a slightly higher price and uh, basically seen as sort of a patriotic move to be like no don't sell to the Chinese we'll buy it and the Chinese came back with a higher offer and said no we'll pay we'll pay more for it so it's like okay okay let's but it just seems like you know for me and I, I honestly like I, defense issues are could not be less my thing um, but I am confused why you would not just do the full review. Because you risk it coming back with... A no? A no. The, Which one of, seems one, like fine. One of the major grievances of the Chinese and trade issues, uh, both in Canada and the United States, has been that national security is often used as a ex quote-unquote excuse uh, for trade protectionism, for not allowing Chinese into the market. Okay. Which, like, you have seen, like, one of the issues and the grievances we have with the United States is that the pipeline for wherever has to be, or this is being discussed, but one of the pipelines or major construction that they're building has to be with all American steel for national oh, security yeah. reasons. Okay, that's bullshit. Like, 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 <laughs> like there are very obvious <laughs> What's examples. What's Canadian steel going to do? Like, 
exactly. like rip itself off and walk back to Canada with all the oil. Like there are very obvious examples, but when you're talking about the sale of tech or natural yeah. resources firms with proprietary technologies, yeah. and you're dealing with a state that has an incredibly spotty record with cyber espionage. Uh, yeah. Can I mention the hack of the National Research Council? A couple years ago, set us back hundreds of millions of dollars and lost all sorts of proprietary technology. Like, you want to be cautious here. And the government is exchanging caution for direct investment yeah. from, from the Chinese government, effectively. I, sorry, I'm still not over the pipeline thing. That, that to me, sounds like the, the English state in, like, the 1600s being like, we can't make our, our, our ships out of French wood. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's madness. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, the, the problem with some of these is on, on the edge cases of where uh, it's being used, it obviously sets a bad precedent for justifying other instances Yeah, where, where national security is a legit example. But I don't think any, I don't think anyone who has spoke on this issue that I've ever seen uh, publicly has made the point for the government. No one, yeah, I haven't seen a whole lot of like, yeah, this is good, I like it, like from anybody yeah, the, at all. We really need to uh, have this sale of a couple million dollars happen because like it'll be it'll be a great bonus for the economy. Like this is, yeah, not even moving. Well, a, that's what they said about like, the Saudi Arabia sale. It's like, well, it's a fifteen billion dollar contract in London, Ontario. You're gonna tell all those workers that they can't sell death machines to the Saudis. And it was like, oh, I guess that's kind of compelling. But this seems to not be yeah. the same kind of thing. So we're all pushed back on you not agreeing with your characterization of that deal. <laughs> uh, I'll say this is a $67 million deal. That's much smaller than $15 billion. Which is peanuts by comparison. Yeah. And in one, you are selling arms to a foreign country. Yes. Um, directly. Yeah. Directly. And not proprietary technology, no. like their last, their, their hard equipment, yeah. their, their jeeps, they have yeah. tires, a steering wheel, that sort yeah. of thing. Everyone knows how to build jeeps. As opposed to, like, yeah, no, no, I totally satellite get and radio yeah, communications yeah. tech. Yeah. So, like... I totally get this distinction, I just am not a fan of either. Uh, bad idea. So, I think this is one to watch. Uh, the Globe and Mail, in particular, under uh, Fife and Co., has yeah. been particularly on this one. Steve Chase and Fife... Steve Chase, I have to say, does good work. Have been... Chase is the, uh, the same Globe Mail journalist who did a lot of the work on the labs yeah. uh, going to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, really good work on that. Um, so it's one to watch uh, to see whether or not they back down on because this is entirely within the... It has no legislative side to this story, really. It's whether or not they... How they follow the provisions of the Investment in Canada Act and whether or not um, there are leaks or how much pushback there is from the civil service in going along with what seems to be a pretty cut-and-dry terrible, uh, yeah. terrible decision by the Trudeau government. Yeah. So uh, the next topic, uh, appointments. Uh, we've talked about these recently a little bit because of uh, Madeleine Mayo's aborted appointment to the uh, Official Languages Commissioner post. Yes. Uh, well, we don't know if she was withdrawn or withdrew, but anyway, th that's in the past now. Uh, but this is not the only sort of time that things have gone a little screwy for um, the Liberals on appointments, and most of the problems that they're just not really making them. And Ken, you want to kick us off on that? So appointments are not something like of our five listeners in Fort McMurray that I bet you not a single one of them cares about. No one in Edmonton listening to the show has probably given much thought to. Unless they are involved with the legal system somehow. That that's true. Actually, and there yeah, we'll get to this later, but carry on. Um, to how appointments within government work, it seems like such an easy thing to do. You like literally you just name names and just go take the job. It's you easy. name yeah it, yeah, it seems very straightforward. Uh, the reality of it's not. Every government struggles with appointments to some degree. 
Um, appointments are a very complicated and bureaucratic process. Yeah. It, even for the political side to work with, it involves a lot of steps and hurdles to be cleared, a lot of consultation, uh, often with regional MPs or regional stakeholders trying to you know, find candidates and then vetting candidates and all, all these other steps. The Liberal government has s- tried to uh, make the process, this is their stated reasons, make the process less partisan. Because yeah. in the past you have seen appointments that uh, people look for famously, candidates. Yeah, famously there was the guy on the like Windsor-Detroit Bridge Commission that was like a lifelong conservative donor and fundraiser and that, this kind of thing happens like it's not just single out the conservatives or anybody in particular it happens all the time i i mean it's never happened with the ndp because you've never formed government it's true oh. yeah you can, well, yeah I, I, <laughs> that's just like okay um, <laughs> yeah yeah but between the conservatives and liberals um patronage appointments uh have existed and of course uh they're, they're actually still the, still exist they're the national sport in the maritime um but even patronage appointments are a fairly rigorous process. Yeah. It's, it's not just call your buddy and, and put them up. There's often testing and calling different MPs and getting different people's takes on the guy and really making sure that this is the man for the yeah, job. Yeah, due diligence just takes time. Um, so appointments are a sticky process to begin with, and the liberals have, in their efforts to make it uh, less partisan, quote-unquote, have in some cases, and only for some appointments, created sort of advisory boards to uh, suggest... Uh, or to create a more nonpartisan process. Yeah. And these have had the effect, really, of multiplying the issue because the first problem where appointments are tricky has now been magnified by the fact that they have to now appoint people to the advisory board in basically the same way. Yeah. Quis custodiat ipsos custodes, right? It's a... To eventually appoint people to the actual appointments themselves and to debate it much longer and you know, with less certainty and all the rest of this. So the, the works have really been gummed up in terms of the appointment process. And there are a lot of outstanding, very important appointments, which I'll address in a minute. But I think the last factor worth mentioning is that almost, I think most, if not all, I can't think of any examples uh, to the contrary, appointments, what are called uh, governor and council appointments, which are the broadest category of appointment across the government of Canada. Um, go through the Prime Minister's office um, for vetting. That, yeah. That's sort of the final... The, the Prime Minister has a branch of his office that is devoted to doing appointments. To doing appointments, and they have their fingers in the works at multiple times. Yeah. And so you'll have appointments. Virtually every single department in government has appointments. Yeah. Um, so say, let's call it 35 departments, and then all sorts of crown corps and... Et cetera. Uh, like liter- literally hundreds of others um, all have positions requiring appointments and this all basically flows through an office of five people in the prime minister's office yeah um i that number is a rough estimate i don't know how many it the can't be government much, has. it's between five and ten like yeah. it's just there there's the departments in the pmo aren't huge it's not many people and all of these problems have of course been compounded yeah. by one of the key members well, the director of the yes yeah. the director of pmo appointments mary ing ing um, missing in action because she was running a campaign uh, to be appointed as an MP. To be elected as an MP. It's a little different. <laughs> I, I take your point. <laughs> which, uh, which she won and is now an MP, but that I, and one would imagine she's not doing her day job at PMM anymore. I believe the position is still vacant. Uh, and well, do they have to make an advisory board for that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so the whole appointments process has really been highlighted in the dying yeah. day, or not in the dying days of this, uh, the sitting of the House. Yeah. 
because there's some really prominent appointments that have been outstanding, particularly in the judicial the side. The judicial side is getting crushed right now. In the sense, like there have been enormous delays in the judicial system across Canada. In fact, there was just a case out of Newfoundland, I believe, and I'm not a lawyer and didn't read this very carefully, so don't quote me on this. But that found basically that like the delays are getting so ridiculous that people are getting charges dropped. Yes, yeah. there have been at least like five one, years waiting for one or two uh, murder cases dropped. Uh, on the basis of uh, fair and timely access yeah. to justice, or or whatever it's called, yeah. uh, so access five to, years is a long time. Yes, to be pending whether yeah. you make bail or not. I don't know. Let's not get into the legal side of things. No, that we, we don't. Have. We're not lawyers. Uh, <laughs> Just we should get blinking lights when I do that. <laughs> anyway, it's a long time. A lot of it is due to there not being enough judges, and a lot of that is due to a slow appointment process. Though I think, from what I hear, the conservatives like didn't make as many appointments as they should have either, because once again. Appointments are complicated and take time. Uh, but it has created a bit of a systemic backlog that the liberal attempt to sort of reform appointments has slowed down even more. So let me uh, refer to this um, David Aiken, uh, who now works for Global News, fun fact, uh, put together a list of some of the more prominent appointments that are outstanding. Uh, many key positions within government or within uh, offices of the parliament and the periphery of government um, are having their contracts extended. Yeah. Uh, prominently, the chief electoral officer, uh, Mark Mayoran, has signaled his intention to move on. Uh, the access to information commissioner, the ethics commissioner, the lobbying commissioner are all on extensions. Yeah. Um, the head of... The RCMP. Uh, this, uh, CATA which is the Canadian Air Transport Authority. The Sergeant of Arms is outstanding. Uh, Sergeant of been... Arms. Yeah, you said Sergeant of Arms. Sergeant of Arms? Sergeant of Arms. Can real... confirm he has two arms. No, the Sergeant at Arms uh, has been missing in action since Kevin Vickers was appointed ambassador to Ireland uh, just this past week. Uh, Beverly McLaughlin uh, announced her intention yeah. to step down from the Supreme Court. Uh, so that one can't, can't give him hell for because it's only been a week, but it's yeah. one of the... Uh, significant outstanding ones. There's some prominent ones with the Department of National Defense. CBC. CBC, the Atomic Energy uh, I think Atomic Energy of Canada. Yeah. Safe to say. CRTC. <laughs> uh, the Governor General is coming up. Oh, yeah. Like, there is a lot of work to be done. Yeah. So, yeah, th th there's a lot. So that's, that's your uh, appointments news for this week. Uh, there's one uh, story that is really dear to Etienne's heart that he absolutely wanted to cover today. And that is uh, WikiLeaks and the upcoming possible LCBO strike. So, so if you're not from Ontario, don't worry about it. Just take the rest <laughs> of the episode off. Uh, go have a beer from your local uh, Crown or privatized uh, liquor dispensing corporation. So the quick version of the story here. We don't often cover... Uh, Ontario issues because they're done. Pr provincial politics. BC accepted it's lately. Us. It's beneath us. BC accepted lately because BC has been so spicy. It has been spicy. Um, but, but or Saskatchewan because I hate Bradwell. There's nothing I love more than when uh, sort of bodies or organizations or unions or advocacy groups make, you know, you know the clear propaganda websites. There's, there's also a great play called uh, Overplaying Your Hand that uh, is, yeah, it happens a lot in Canadian politics. So, LickyLeaks, not WikiLeaks, LickyLeaks.ca is a website set up by the uh, OPSU, I'm not, I'm not saying this quite correctly. Ontario Public Service Employees Union. Yeah. Um, union, which is uh, responsible for LCBO employees, and it's just sort of funny. Um, 
the LCBO has been threatening to go on strike on no none other but my birthday. Oh. Of course they would go on strike uh, on my birthday, just just despite my my hatred for the institution that is the LCBO. Um, at issue um, on the website, they'll see a lot of prominent labor issues highlighted, uh, which from what I've been able to assess from Twitter and just different conversations seem like valid grievances uh however i I do want to highlight one of these it's like keeping people on like a flexible part-time contract for years on end which is to say like you're getting a variable amount of hours per week it that sucks like that legitimately is quite bad especially when you're a corporation as profitable as lcbo but carry on i i don't disagree with that no i know i I, just wanted to highlight i just think those concerns are in some cases it should all be abolished (laughs) um it's it, that's sort of an interesting. I was interested to see the contents of the website um, and just to contrast it with an interview I heard on Radio Canada uh, about a month or two ago when this idea for the strike was initially being floated, where some of the statements by a union member, the head, or someone someone in charge uh, were that one of their biggest demands was a referendum because liquor is gradually being introduced to grocery stores. Oh, yeah. Or not liquor, but beer and wine is being gradually introduced. And so they wanted a provincial referendum before any more steps were taken at uh, removing distribution from the dying grasps of the LCBO. And I thought that was hilarious. And I think that is that a substantial... Be, that would be an overplay. A substantial part of the strike um, or the reasons that they're striking and what they're pushing for. So, like, if it's if it's a... One issue, fine. If it's the other one, YOLO don't care. Um, we'll see how it goes, though. Yeah. We have seven days to see whether or not uh, the, the LCBO will try and ruin my birthday yeah. and Canada Day. If uh, if the LCBO goes on strike, we have no option but to uh, walk 25 minutes to Quebec and buy liquor there. We'll still be able to buy it at our grocery store across the street. Also that. Thank yeah. God. So there's also that. Yeah. Anyway, that'll do it for uh, the Boys in Short Pants this week. Uh Thanks so much, everyone, for, for tuning in once again. Next week, we have a, uh, a special treat. It'll be sort of the wrap-up episode as Parliament will uh, be closed down for the summer. Uh, and we're hoping to do a little bit of a trivia episode. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, obscure parliamentary trivia that will teach you a few things and you'll probably score terribly on, but that's the point. I guess I have a preliminary uh, starter question for you. I'm not sure if you know this one. I may have told you in the past, but let me, let me ask you. Um... How to phrase this question. What is the most prominent movie a member of parliament has been in or a significant member in? Oh, jeez. And I'll I'll, I'll give you some hints here. Okay. Uh, So the MP in question uh, is no longer an MP. He was an MP in the last uh, session of parliament. Was he the NDP's culture critic? He was an NDP. Uh, what's his portfolio? It likely was culture. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? It would be, I, if it's who I'm thinking of, It w- he was uh, a Montreal MP who played the Persian Emissary in 300. Yes. Tyrone, Tyrone Beskin, yeah. Yes, Tyrone Beskin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was actually floored when I found this out a couple years ago. The, the Persian Emissary role is the role uh, at like... The guy who gets kicked into the well. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. He is not the guy who gets kicked into the world. Is he the arrows will block out the sun guy? He is the arrows will block out the sun guy. That's even (laughs) better. Like one of the best scenes from the movie saying like, uh, our arrows will block out the sun. Then we will fight in the shade. Another really fun fact, a lot of guys in that movie have actually gone to go to politics. Uh, The sword arm guy is actually a municipal counselor in Vancouver now. 
Cool. Yeah. Move. No, I don't mean that. That was a joke. <laughs> 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 All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. I'm very disappointed by that. <laughs> <laughs>